2: Welcome to the podcast, this is Who Killed Teresa, and I'm your host, John Allure. (music) Sasha Reed is joining us today. Sasha Reed is a PhD candidate in applied psychology and human development at the University of Toronto, and has spent 11 years studying serial homicide, Last summer, Sasha contacted the Toronto Police with a basic profile of the man she suspected was stalking the city's LGBTQ community. Early this year, police charged Bruce MacArthur with six murders. The investigation into MacArthur, a 66-year-old landscaper, has revealed that police found remains of at least six people at homes on Mallory Crescent where MacArthur mowed the owner's lawns in exchange for storing work equipment in their garage. Many of the characteristics of Reed's profile matched the behaviors of MacArthur. Uh, Sasha Reed, uh, welcome to Who Killed Teresa?
0: Thank you for having me.
2: Absolutely. So, um, I I would imagine most people want would want to run right into discussing the entire uh, Bruce MacArthur situation. But before we get there, um, I think it would be a good idea um, for you to to tell us a little bit about yourself. I, I know you're you're a PhD candidate in criminology at the University of Toronto, but um, maybe maybe it would be helpful to give us a little bit of background of how you got there. If if you could, uh, where are you from and what what led you into wanting to be a criminologist?
0: So I'm actually a PhD in a applied psychology and human development. So I study crime and human development together. Um, and what led me there? It has been the most twisted journey, <laughs> not had any kind of clear steps at all. Um, I'm from a small, small town in Dryden, Dryden, Ontario, and I've always been fascinated with the darker side of human nature. It started out just as a kid trying to, I guess, understand monsters, and I was very curious about monsters, Uh, but as a kid, you kind of, you know, your imagination's everywhere and you grow up and you realize monsters don't exist, but people do monstrous things. And so it's always, I've always been interested in that. That's never, ever changed. Um, I never really saw a career in this. I, I guess, again, growing up, you don't see too many female police officers, or at least I didn't when I was a kid. So I wanted to go into teaching. Uh, after I finished my undergrad degree at University of Toronto Scarborough, I did my master's in child study and education. So I'm actually an Ontario certified teacher. Um, but halfway through, through that program two-year program halfway through I was so bored and I remember going to my uh my group or I guess my school liaison and I explained to her that I'd like to quit I'd like to drop out and she asked me why and I told her that I'm not interested in studying healthy happy children my mind is always going towards the deviant children and the children who are struggling and this is just it's not fun for me anymore and she said something that completely changed my life around She said, Sasha, you need to stay in this program, because if you want to spend your entire life studying crime and deviance and abnormality, you need a baseline for first understanding what normality is in child development. And so I stayed, and I finished that program, and then right after I did my master's in criminology, and now I'm studying and using everything I've learned so far um, to understand serial homicide. And
2: I believe you have two masters, is that correct? Yeah. yeah, my yeah.
0: first master's was the child study uh, right. master's, and then the second master's was in uh, criminology. Okay.
2: And where is, for people who don't know, where is Dryden, Ontario? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Dryden, Ontario is this tiny little town located right in the center of Winnipeg, Manitoba, and Thunder Bay, Ontario. So it's close to the Ontario-Manitoba border. It's uh, by Kenora, Lake of the Woods. It's a really small town, but a great town.
2: Right, and and your um your heritage is Métis, correct? Can you?
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm Métis.
2: Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, so this is something I didn't know for a long time. In fact, I first found out when I when I first began school. So I found out eleven years ago uh, that I was Métis, and it was kind of a shock. Um, It shouldn't have been a shock, looking back, but I guess it was at the time. So growing up in Dryden, you know, you have to understand what a small town this is. It's starting to grow a little bit, but when I was growing up there, we only had two, um, I guess, racial ethnicities. There were Caucasians and there were First Nations, and that, that was it. Um, I'd never heard an accent in my life ever until I moved to Toronto. And so growing up, you know, there's just this very clear distinction between the white people and the Indigenous people. Um I, I never was really taught much about race. I never really focused much on it. So I never even considered that I would be Indigenous. Uh, but as soon as I found out, oh my gosh, I threw myself into my culture. Uh, I started working at a, uh, a university, Lakehead University. And I worked with the Native Language Instructors Program, where they're trying to retain Native language. Then I moved to Toronto and I started working with uh, Indigenous programs here. It was called SOAR, and we would bring Indigenous students from all over Canada to Toronto and help find them mentors and get them excited about post-secondary education because there's such a, a, a difference. Um, many, many Indigenous people don't have the same level of education as many Caucasians, and so that was phenomenal. And then I worked on a bunch of programs and conferences on decolonizing knowledge, and yep, I really
2: throw myself into it. It's been awesome. That's that's great. Um I, for for someone who is not from Canada, could you could you talk a little bit about the the murdered and missing indigenous woman situation in Canada? I know it's a it, it, it's a complex thing, but since you grew up so close to Winnipeg and and there's certainly missing women from you know marginalized women from the Winnipeg area from the Alberta area mm-hmm. Uh, for, certainly, uh, we've we've discussed on on this um, podcast uh, Kim Rosmo and Robert Pickton in uh, in the Vancouver downtown east side. But for someone who who is coming from the outside, and as you know, there there are hearings going on right now and a process of I I guess you'd say reconciliation. But from from the perspective of someone who studies criminology and who is a Canadian. Can, can you give us um, your perspective on it?
0: Yeah, so my perspective on it might be different from others, just because I really haven't studied it too in depth. However, I know that the inquiry, it really picked up steam after the Robert Picton case and the inquiry that was conducted into it. Um, we heard that police officers there were not taking the missing person's calls seriously. Um, They doubted that these people were really missing and thought that they had just run away. There was a lot of stigma and victim blaming, and people were not really recognizing the dangers uh, that kind of accompany Indigenous people when they go missing, right? So in Canada, there are a large, large number, proportional to the population, of Indigenous women who are going missing. And uh, unfortunately what you're seeing is there's a lack of public information about them. Mostly all you can find is the names. When newspaper reports come out about missing women, oftentimes you're going to find something like they had a history of running away or they had a history of substance abuse. So it's kind of focusing on the negative elements, which I think kind of delegitimize their cases. So the missing women's inquiry is in part, I think, really attempting to show Canadians listen, we need to kind of pull away from victim blaming. We need to understand the the consequences that uh, colonization had within these populations and understand that victim blaming is not helping, but these people are going missing, and we really need to start taking this seriously as opposed to just presuming that they ran away or presuming that they were drunk and they'll they'll be found later on. It's just trying to up the level of, of seriousness with which we... I guess, consider these
2: cases. Which is probably a good um, uh, point to dovetail into another sector of marginalized society. Uh, can can you explain what the origins of, w- w- certainly m- men from the gay community in Toronto were going missing... Um, in the, the last, uh, I guess, four or five years, and nothing was being, again, it was not being taken seriously, I believe. Um, the LGBTQ community certainly was taking it seriously, but from all appearances, the, the police were not. I mean, I, some of the language you're using is can be very applicable to the situation in Toronto. They, they just disappeared. They moved away. You know, they have a lifestyle that is conducive to, I don't know, disappearance. Um, So we won't worry about it. Um, When did it reach a critical um, situation uh, in your mind in Toronto? I guess there's there's
0: actually, that's a very loaded question. There's a lot to say about
2: that. Well, we can take it in pieces. So...
0: I mean, at least for me personally, it hit a critical point after you had the first three, right? So uh, I think it was Basir, Skanda, and Majid, I think, um, who were missing first. And those were the people who I found in my database and who I mapped it. And that's, you know, when I decided to call the police. For me, that was a critical point because you don't see patterns that often. But at the same time, you know, the police back then had started what was called Project Houston, and they have been looking into determining whether or not these disappearances of these men specifically were suspicious. Um, I know that the LGBTQ community was on this first, they were on it fast and they were on it hard. Um, and so it's really thanks to them. I think that this case got as far as it did, um, for the police. So it's, easy to talk about the Robert Pickton case and all the all the problems that were associated with it because there's an inquiry there's a 400 page report of mistakes that were made I think it's a little little too early right now to talk about the mistakes that the Toronto police made just because as outsiders looking in everything that was done looks wrong right but hindsight's 2020 and I think until there's a, a full report detailing all the mistakes that were made and yeah we'll find them but until that report comes out, it's hard to really say when when they decided to make or think that things were serious and, you know, what mistakes actually came about. And I think it's just too early. So
2: let, let's back up for a second. Uh, we'll, we'll get to the police. But since you touched on it, you have a database. In fact, you have a yeah. couple of databases. One is a one is offender centered and the other is victim centered. Um, now, it would seem common sense that that any police agency should have something like this. And yet, mm-hmm. and, and in some ways they do. They have tools such as ViClass, etc. cetera. But... Um, we sort of know that garbage in, garbage out, right? It's it's only as good as the quality of the data that you, you maintain. And, and some some agencies are spotty and some are not. But and we will get to that. But so you have a database. At what point did you put two and two together and go to the Toronto Police?
0: So the point where I put everything together, this was way late, right? So this was last summer. It was July of 2017. Um, I had been working on database for some time, and I, you know, just found this random website. It's not a random website. It's the Ontario Missing Persons Registry. But I hadn't been on there before, and so this time I found it and just started adding names. And it was, maybe it was just the way that these people were put into the database. It was one after another. So Skanda, Basir, Majid. And I thought, okay, this is, they're all from the exact same area. they are engaged in all the same community, they know the same people, they go to the same places. This to me is interesting and it needs to be examined further. That's when I kind of took all the data that I had for them, actually I took all the data that I had for all missing people across Toronto, I mapped that on a map and I tried to get a sense of were there other patterns, um, who was missing in what area and no pattern really stood out. I mean, there were a few patterns, but no pattern stood out as clearly as the, as the one in Church and Wellesley. Um, and so at that point, I thought, wow, I, I really need to call the police. But then, you know, so many people had already, because I started Googling these people's names and trying to find out more about them. As I was Googling their names, I had already come to the realization that people had called the, the police several times saying, we're concerned that there's a serial killer. And so I thought, there's absolutely no way that I can go with this data and just say the exact same thing because they've heard it a thousand times. Um, I thought, you know, what, what can I do to make myself a little, more, a little more serious or maybe, I don't know, to have the police take me a little more seriously. Uh, and that's when I, I went to my offender database, kind of drafted up this very simple profile. Profiles are 23 plus pages. This was just like a list of descriptors that I think might have been helpful if they were interested in narrowing down the case or a suspect. So well, that's when I decided to call.
2: And and what did you you called them? You didn't you didn't go to College Street. You you phoned them on the phone. What was their response like?
0: So it was actually okay. It was interesting, because it was the first time I'd ever called the police in my life, so I had no idea what to do. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I
2: don't like making those I, calls either.
0: <laughs> it was it was weird. It, I don't know. I felt weird making this call. I remember my hands were sweating, and my voice was shaking. I, I had no idea what I was doing. I just knew I had to do something. So I called 911, good for me, <laughs> and I told them, <laughs> it's, not, it's not an emergency. But I've got some tips, and I'd like to share it. Uh, Can you connect me? They connected me to a detective who wasn't working on the case itself, but, you know, he was a man and a detective. And I explained, the very first thing I said is, hi, my name is Sasha. I'm a student at the University of Toronto, uh, an expert in serial homicide, and, and, you know, I've got these databases, and I think I can help you because I think you have a serial killer. (laughs) Wow. So I don't know. Yeah, I... I think I came on a little strong <laughs> at first, and also I think just because I'd never called the police before, I shouldn't have said my name. Sasha, I'm a student. I think that delegitimized anything I had to say after that. Um, but the guy was still amazing. He sat with me for 20 minutes just talking. So there was actually four people on my list when I called originally. Um, so another person, his last name was Burnett. So Mr. Burnett, I asked about him first and the officer explained to me that that person had been found safe and everything's okay. So crossed him off my list, that was really helpful. Um, but then after that I explained to him well there's three more and they're they're highly connected. And he said we've heard whispers and rumors about a serial killer and you know we've looked into them. He explained Project Houston and he, I forget the rest of the conversation. Again, this is was july of last year i had no idea what was going to happen um but i just remember he listened to everything and i remember explaining to him like i have these databases and i can build this profile and i think he's you know a male and he does you know whatever whatever and he (laughs) said you know i think that's really great and this might be helpful but i'm not sure how we can use this information and he said if if they need my help or if they think that they can find some kind of value with this data, they'll give me a call back. And all of that, that whole conversation took 25 minutes, and uh, that was it.
2: And did they ever call you back?
0: No, no, they didn't.
2: <laughs> because some of the, I mean, I, you you, you kind of, um, you know, you're a little self-deprecating about your work, uh, and, and it kind of shocks me because, you know, looking at your, your profile, and, and I understand you know, the difference between a, a professional profile and... and but but th- this is... Okay, there's two points you got wrong, um, that he'd be a little over 30 um, and the, a person of color. Totally understandable that you would come to those assumptions. Bruce MacArthur is 66 years old, he's white. Um, But, and even I... Uh, you know I've talked to to Mike Arnfield about this about profiling and and you know his take on it is it's it's you know you'd have a you'd, you'd you'd have a better chance with luck you're really kind of guessing with these things however some of the points you said the person would be burying bodies outside or somewhere in the home like in their home, somewhere where they have access to it. Where in the world did you... I mean, that's incredible. Because as we know, MacArthur is a landscaper and he buried the bodies um, in homes that he was landscaping. How did you come up with this?
0: I think, well, you know, it sounds amazing and it sounds like magic. It almost sounds like magic, but really, it's just in the data So looking through my serial homicide database, what I was doing was I took every single homosexual, sexually motivated serial killer that I had or that I could find within my database and I just did a descriptive search of where they were hiding bodies. So anything I thought that could potentially help police narrow in on a suspect, I looked for. And so I looked for um, where they might be hiding the bodies because I think the police would want to know where they're hiding the bodies. (laughs) <laughs> so I looked at where all of these people were keeping the bodies after they had been deceased and almost all of them, it was so shocking. It was just so strange seeing it. Almost all of them had either kept the body within their house or a short um, distance away like in a park or any kind of outdoor space that they could frequent. So this wasn't some amazing Super psychic seduction.
2: It was just whatever was in the data, within the data. So it's like kind of like looking at a a, a Jeffrey Dahmer or a, or a Kemper, and and kind of which, um, well, I you know the police will never tell you what they know and what they don't know, right? Then that way they they always look like the smartest people in in the room. H- however, um, I mean my my take on it is. Uh, they didn't come to this kind of, you know, profiling in Canada is is still relatively a, um, a a new game, really. I mean certainly you know, pioneered by the FBI, but as you know, up until the I mean in Quebec, you know my what I do is you know my my stomping ground is Quebec. In Quebec, they didn't have their first profilers until the early 2000s, about 2005 in fact. So they were, they, yeah, yeah. They were still, they were still in the '90s. rely, well, in the '80s, they were relying on the FBI and Quantico, and then in the '90s, they were relying on the RCMP for profiles, and and, and even some of those initial RCMP profilers pro, are are really naive in, in in their approach. So I doubt. I mean, I don't think you give yourself enough credit. I I doubt the Toronto Police Force. Were anywhere near um, as perceptive as you you were with, with this.
0: Yeah. Well, the thing is, and I really kind of blame myself for this, because you just made a really good point. You'll never know, the police will never tell you what they know, and I think for me, again, having never called the police before, I figured that they would just tell me what they knew, and then I could help fill in the blanks, but <laughs> that didn't happen. That wasn't really the case. And so at this point when I called them, I thought, okay, well, I'm pretty sure maybe they already know it's a serial killer, and they probably know so much more than me. You know, I shouldn't even try calling back again because these are the experts. These are the pros, right? So I guess it, it, it was a learning experience for me knowing that it's okay to call back and not to really... Don't discourage your, your gut instinct. You follow it, so follow through on stuff like that. And uh, at the same time, though, profiling, it is, like you said, it's so... Oh, no, it's so different. It's, it's so un- underdeveloped. And I think Michael Arfield is completely right when he says you almost have better luck or better a better chance with just using luck. I think the only reason that I was able to come to these conclusions is because not only do I have an exceptionally large database, two of them, but I, I've also got 11 years' worth of experience with... Human development, criminology, abnormal behavior. I, I'm not just at Quantico taking a course and then being labeled a profiler. I'm not a profiler. I'm an expert in human development and human behavior. So I think I have that. That's
2: well, I, I'm an I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. And you're, um, <clears throat> you know, as 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 much as um, I am um, you, you know, somewhat. Uh, uh, distrustful, um, suspicious of, of, uh, web sleuths and things like that. I would have to, I would have to argue that I am a a product of that. I am a web sleuth. I mean, it, it, and, and your experience is not like my experience. Um, early, um, in, you know, 2002, With my sister's case, I found two other cases and with was just luck that we managed to get Kim Rosmo to to add, you you know, some credibility to what we were thinking that a serial killer was working in the Sherbrooke, Quebec um, area. But when I went to the police with that, you know, my instinct was they're going to laugh at me. They're going to take a look at this. They're going to say. Oh, Mr. Allure, don't you know those other two crimes were solved years ago or, you know, something like that. And when, Mm -hmm. you know, because they're the experts, but when that didn't happen and you keep pushing and pushing and you and you find, as you say it, you you know, they're supposed to be the experts. And then you find out none of them has been trained in in behavioral profiling. They didn't even know what geographic profiling was uh, We were. I thought when we'd say that, they'd go, oh, <laughs> these these guys know something. They didn't even know what we were talking about, you know? And as you say, you know, a lot of these officers, detectives, they 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 spend, you know, a month in training down in Quantico, Virginia, or at the Nicorette Academy in, in Quebec, and then they get a certificate, and lo and behold, they're, they're detectives. That's that's nothing compared to 11 years of professional experience.
0: It's true. To a certain extent, I feel like they're also so necessary because maybe this is just me being really self-deprecating. I, I don't know how to solve a case. Sometimes what the police do seems like magic to me. So I, I can help narrow things down. But... I feel that there's nothing more valuable than, you know, groundwork, actual, actual detective work, I think is really, really important. If you can leverage two successfully, um, and there's mutual respect on both sides, I think that's a really really great way to solve a case quickly, or at least you'll have a better attempt at solving a case, right? Um, Well,
2: I, 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 yeah, I mean, I can completely agree with you is, I mean, at my worst, I will sometimes go off half cocked. At at the Quebec police, um, and and those are moments of of frustration and despair, and not my best moments. But you, you know, for the for the most part, I am supportive of the Quebec police, knowing that I you're right. You and I can't solve a crime. It has to, it has to be the police who solve a crime. They're the ones who who bring you, you know who, who through evidence can make an arrest and, and, and then get a case to trial. That's not you and me. We can't, we cannot do that. So I, I'm, you know, I'm very supportive of that. However, on the other hand, I mean, we might as well go here, you know, the chief of police in, in Toronto um, recently, you, you know, I think he, don't you think he went a little too far in, in sort of in some senses, blaming the community for not coming forward sooner in some senses, making the the assertion that Toronto had never seen anything like this, it had no experience in this. I mean, come on. I mean, we've we've had young women dismembered in Toronto as early as in the last year. We had the Alice Allison Parrot case back in the '80s. We had the Scarborough racist, uh, rapist. Um, I mean, I think it's a bridge mm-hmm. too far for him to just come out and and say, "Well, we didn't know because we had no experience in this."
0: Yeah. So I didn't read the whole transcript of what what he said. I know that it definitely rubbed the LGBTQ community very, well, in the wrong way. Um, Because they had, like I said, they're the ones who started this. They're the ones who've been so vocal about solving this and, you know, trying to raise awareness. So I don't know exactly what he said. But if he said they didn't help, I think that's incorrect. They absolutely tried their best. Um, And then in regards to never having a serial killer in Toronto... Oh, come on. Yeah. <laughs> you got Christian McGee, Russell Johnson, Carla Homolka, Paul Bernardo, um Peter Woodcock, even H.H. H. Holmes was here.
2: Was I mean, he was he really? <laughs> I didn't know that. Wow.
0: Well, I according his victims yeah. are buried in Mount Pleasant Cemetery.
2: I had no idea. Of course, according <laughs> to some people H.H. H. Holmes was everywhere. So, <laughs> I mean, who knows? <laughs> um, um, is this for you in any way an obsession? I mean, I, di- I I can't help but notice that you have pictures of, you know, Gacy, Ridgway, Kemper, Bundy on your wall in your office. Um, uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Why do you like, I mean, I, I don't have that. Uh, I, some people think I have that. Well, I have crime maps around, but mostly I have pictures of Quebec. Um, wh- how does that motivate you?
0: hard question to answer without sounding like a mental person, (laughs) but I think in order for people to understand... Try me on. Okay, I'm a person who, who, as a young person, was victimized by somebody who I consider to be a psychopath, and for a long time, it was traumatizing to me what was happening, and I found... Peace of mind in, in a library, reading books about psychopathy. And one day I came across um, Robert Hare's book, Without Conscience. And it explained everything about what a psychopath is and why they do what they do. And the second I understood it, I was healed. There was no more pain, no more negativity associated with the trauma. It was The trauma was gone. And understanding why for me, was so therapeutic at that moment I decided to dedicate the rest of my life to helping other people understand and why. And I think some of the people who are the most victimized on this planet are people who are victimized by serial killers. Their their families are destroyed. They're not listening. People think they're crazy when they go and they think there's a serial killer, and they're taking these people, and they're hurting, hurting people from within my community. I I can't solve a case for you. I'm not a detective or a police officer, but I can explain why this has happened, and why that person did what they did. And I think for me, knowing that I could probably help people a little bit with whatever, whatever trauma they're helping, that's become an obsession. So it's not serial killers. It's the ability to give a a person the answer to why why yeah. did this happen
2: that's, that's that's great thank you
0: where do you,
2: Sasha where do you see yourself in five years I mean you're you're finishing I, I imagine you're working on your thesis um, what's next
0: so that's a really good question um ideally I've always seen myself in academia I I thrive in a in a place where I can be creative and intellectual and reach out and collaborate and not have, I don't know, bureaucracy messing up what I do. I need creative control. So academia would be very good. But at the same time, the more I'm working with people, um, the more I'm collaborating, the more people are learning about these databases, people are starting to see some real practical implications of them. And it's making me believe perhaps there's a job not only in academia, but Something else, else outside, so consulting, maybe helping law enforcement. I, I just want to help. Whatever job <laughs> would allow me to exercise full creative control and also allow me to help people. I think that's that's where I want to be. I don't know exactly where it is yet, but that's kind of the, the goal.
2: Well, I th- I think with your database work, I mean, as you know, that I I admire it, and I think you're you've you've shown me some of your data and. Uh, I think you're really on to something, and, and uh, I, I do think it it is a fundamental flaw that law enforcement are not utilizing these kind of tools to, to the extent that I think they, or I don't believe they are. If I believe they were, I think they'd be solving more, you know, their unsolved uh, rates on homicide would be dropping, but that's not the case in Canada. Um, it sort of plateaued at a 66 or 75 percent solved ratio, depending on where you're looking. And and despite the fact and I, be, I believe it's Arnfield who's who's argued this, despite the fact that we have better tools, that homicide is is generally dropping um, and, and that we have all this uh, abilities with forensics behind us the unsolved rate is not changing. And it's like, well, why is that? And there's been a, a few theories, you know, floated. But I think one of the most compelling is the idea that that a lot of these detectives don't know how fundamentally to use data or they abuse data. Um, so I think I, I think with your work with your, your databases is, you know, I, I guess you have some research assistants who help you with those, I think you're really on to something, you know, very strong and, and and very compelling there.
0: Well, next up, I've, I've had my research assistants now for some time. And they're, honestly, I, I might be the face of this work, but I want everybody to know it's my research assistants who are the stars. This amazing database, the length of it, the extent of it, just, it's them. I give them names and they fill out the info. So they get credit, not me. Right. <laughs> they're extraordinary, right? <laughs> Um and then where I'd like to take this like in the last two weeks I've been contacted by so many different people. So I've had a discussion with the um Native what is it called? The Native Women's Association last Friday and now we have some kind of connection. We're gonna be working together. Um there may or may not be some kind of collaboration with police in the future. Um and I've recently reached out well actually this person reached out to me. He's Basically, he owns a company with artificial intelligence, machine learning, et cetera, et cetera, and he's offered me all of his services for forensic research pro bono, which this this is what I need. I need this, right? I need to make connections because I'm just a data input person uh, uh, who rouses people (laughs) together to make something great. These people do the good stuff. Um, and now I'm just kind of centering everybody so that we can hopefully make
2: something really big out of these databases. Well, that I mean that's great, and and also you know you've touched on it, but we might as well say it. You know, the criminology field is very male centric. Uh, you know, the three I know in Canada, Arnfield, Rosmo, uh, Beauregard, they're all men. So it's and there's there's not a lot of women in the field that. Uh, that I'm aware of. I mean, the one that comes to mind is is a forensic scientist, Kathy Reichs, the the author mm-hmm. uh, um, who started in the Quebec uh, forensics lab and is now in. Um, actually, she's down here in in North Carolina in Sh- in Charlotte. She works there. Um, but but beyond that, there's scant few, right? A few role models of women in in this field. Any any comments on that?
0: My um, only. Comment is that I completely agree. I've I've never had the pleasure of collaborating with another female criminologist just because they either study other things, they're not interested in serial homicide, or they just don't exist. No one's not that I can think of, not that anyone's reached out. It's always been men.
2: Yeah and 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 the men are the ones doing most of the crimes. Carla Hermolka is the as the exception but yeah. I think you, I think you're on to something here. Um, Sasha I I'm At I'm, the same time Oh go ahead.
0: At the same time you know the work that I've done has really kind of I guess touched a lot of women at the University of Toronto so I've had now five students email me over the course of the last two weeks and they're all women and they're saying i am all always been interested in this but I never knew there was that was a career option and so now it's kind of exciting getting to talk to a female students who are interested in pursuing a, a, a career in criminology focusing specifically on serial homicide and violent crimes so it's there it's getting there it's just bubbling right now and I think they need to see it they need to see that it's a possibility an option I can, everybody has yeah. said to me they just didn't know it was a, an option
2: I completely agree with you that that is it's very very necessary. I have a, a youngest daughter who tells me she when she grows up she wants to be one of two things. She either wants to be an artist or she wants to perform autopsies. I'm not quite sure <laughs> how <laughs> I'm supposed to respond to that, but um she's been quite steadfast on it. Um so we'll see. Um Sasha, I'd I'd like to end with um a little thing we do uh, on the pad- podcast, which is like a rapid round. We ask a few questions of you that are kind of fun and to kind of get to know you uh, better. Are you are you game for that?
0: Yeah. Do are... I just answer as fast as I can?
2: No, no, no. Rapid round just doesn't mean speed in that sense. It's just some <laughs> quick questions. Um, like, for, to begin with, what, what book are you currently reading? Oh, that's a good one. Uh
0: White Fang. By Jack
2: London. Really, I, fantastic! Yeah, I, I know I love it. <laughs> Excellent. And um, if you binge watch something, say on Netflix or whatever, what, what 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 are you currently binge watching, or have you enjoyed watching? I
0: wish I had time to binge watch.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I thought you might say I, that. Listen,
0: five a.m. every day, and in bed at eleven p.m. every night, and at least thirteen hours of those are work. So I just. No time for
2: TV. Right, right. You, you said your commute is quite something, I believe. From yeah, from yeah. Toronto, from where you live, right? Right. Um, um, what is what's your favorite spot in Toronto to go and maybe just reflect? Nova Spa. Nova Spa. Where is that?
1: Yes,
0: it's a spa in Yorkville, and they have ten percent student discounts.
2: Oh, okay. okay what's your favorite place to have lunch in Toronto?
0: It used to be a chocolate bar called, um, Morocco, but they recently moved. It wasn't Yorkville and now it's on Madison Avenue. Now they used to have steaks there and really good Manhattan, but they don't (laughs) have these anymore. Now it's just chocolate. I have to find a new spot.
2: Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. And you're right. You're, you know, you're right there at, I think we were talking at Bloor and Bedford, I believe, which, um, uh, is my old stomping grounds. However, I was there in the summer showing one of my daughters, U of T. Um, and I, I, I almost got lost on Bedford with the sport comp. I, I didn't know where I was. And like, I'd lived there for five years. But w- what Varsity Stadium and all that has become, I mean, it's like now it's a two-sided sports complex, right? I mean, I I, I, mm-hmm. I, I was almost completely completely thrown. If... If you weren't a criminologist, what would you be? Dead. Oh, what? That's not true. <laughs>
0: There's nothing else.
2: There's nothing else.
0: <laughs> it's nothing There's else. There's literally nothing else. This, the work that I do is the air that I breathe. It is me. It is not something that I do. It is me. I couldn't do anything else.
2: Well, that is to- total commitment. It is total Last question. Uh, what was your first concert?
0: Oh, you're going to make fun. It was <laughs> Avril Lavigne in Winnipeg.
2: That is so excellent. <laughs> that, might, that might be the keeper of, of all of them. I've heard some silly ones, but, um, well, we're not going to talk about my first concert. So, um, But Avril Lavigne is, is definitely a keeper. You should not be ashamed of that. <laughs> well, well listen <laughs> Sasha I, I really want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us today it was, it was certainly my pleasure uh, to interview and, and have a chance to, to have morning coffee with you and I wish you uh, all the success in the world thank you and
0: thank you so much for having me and for the work that you do thank you very very much
2: you're, you're, you're welcome That is our podcast for this Sunday, March 4th. Um, If you like the program, give us a five-star review on iTunes or SoundCloud, Stitcher, etc. You can follow us on social media. I'm on Twitter at JusticeGuy, at J-U-S-T-U-S-G-U-Y. Also, there's a separate handle for the podcast itself, at T H E R E S A A L L O R E. Follow us on Facebook at Who Killed Teresa, the podcast. And you can also find visual information on the website, Who Killed Teresa. That's at T h e R e s a a l l o r e. T H E R E S A A L L O R E.com. Thank you so much for joining us today for our interview with Sasha Reed. And have yourselves a great, great afternoon.
0: Gym sessions and sweaty summer activities are back, which means more funky smells in your clothes because sweat leaves behind bacteria that causes those hard-to-remove odors. Clorox fabric sanitizer products are ready to zap the stink out of fabrics in your home by getting rid of 99.9% of odor-causing bacteria. Eliminate odors in every load or sanitize fabrics between washes with one of our fabric sanitizer products. Search fabric sanitizer at clorox.com to learn more. When it counts, trust Clorox. Use as directed.